I think there are all kinds of irrefutable good reasons why we need to be rethinking education at the moment in the light of many of the things that we've been talking about. Um, the status quo won't stand. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, Rethinkers, and welcome to episode 16 of the Rethinking Education podcast. Today, we welcome our first return guest to the show in the form of Professor Guy Claxton. Last year, I was fortunate to be able to read a sneak preview of Guy's sensational new book, The Future of Teaching and the Myths that Hold It Back. Initially, I invited him onto the podcast to discuss the book, but because this book marks a departure from the majority of Guy's work, we agreed that it would make sense to firstly have a more expansive conversation, mainly about our shared passion for learning to learn, and then for Guy to return a second time to discuss the book. And here we are. And what a book it is. Here are a few of the things that people have written about it. John Hattie, the well-known researcher and professor at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, wrote, So much simplistic nonsense is being touted about direct instruction and the knowledge-rich curriculum. It is great to see someone finally talking sense. As a practicing cognitive scientist, Guy Claxton is perfectly equipped to take us beyond the familiar slanging match between traditionalists and progressives. He illuminates with his trademark wit and style complex issues such as the function of knowledge, the psychology of creative and critical thinking, the true nature of memory, the culture of the classroom, and the many purposes of education, a timely tour de force. Deborah Kidd, the author of A Curriculum of Hope, among many other brilliant books, and as you may recall, the first ever guest on the Rethinking Education podcast, a brilliant episode, by the way, in case you haven't heard that one, wrote... This is the book that I've been longing to read for at least six years. The surgical dismantling of myths and misinformation, the clarity of explanation of complex ideas, the clear examples from real schools, and the humour peppered throughout had me punching the air, laughing, and then thinking hard to process those aha moments. I'll read it again and again. And lastly, Dylan William has written a really quite remarkable foreword to this book, from which I'll just pull out a few choice excerpts. It seems that Dylan and Guy go back a long way to a time when I was in short trousers, in fact, and I'm no spring chicken, listeners. And he writes about a conversation that he remembers having with Guy in the early 1980s, when Dylan was a research fellow at Chelsea College and Guy was a senior lecturer in the psychology of learning. Dylan writes... I vividly remember talking to him about John Anderson's book on the architecture of cognition, a book that I thought might provide a theoretical framework for my PhD on children's logical thinking in mathematical investigations, and he pointed out patiently why it would probably not be of much help. I can remember to this day his judgment of the main thrust of the book as, in quotes, an idea whose time has gone, close quotes which is quite interesting because Guy and I spend quite a lot of time in this conversation today talking about the architecture of cognition. So it's obviously an idea whose time has not yet gone. 
but perhaps it really should start getting the message. Dylan goes on to write, People are often surprised that I endorse Guy's work so strongly, but the truth is that we have very similar ideas about the purpose of education. The differences are mainly in our beliefs about the best ways to get there. He goes on to write, In my own work I've spent little time focusing on the goals of education and have instead focused on helping teachers do what they want and need to do. But as Guy makes clear in this compelling and powerful new book, supporting teachers to teach more effectively within an impoverished view of the overall purpose of education has real dangers now more than ever. Indeed, while teacher-led approaches may well be appropriate where the goal is to ensure that students develop certain important, well-defined skills such as grammatical writing, accurate mathematical calculation or scientific reasoning, claiming that all teaching should be of this kind is way too sweeping. Those who argue for the superiority of direct instruction no matter what it is you want your students to learn remind me of the drunk looking for his keys beneath the street lamp, not because that's where he dropped the keys, but because that's where the light is. How you teach has to be subordinate to what it is that you want the students to learn. What students know about the traditional school subjects is important, but their dispositions, how they react to challenges and frustrations, what they believe about people who hold different opinions and beliefs from their own, their determination to do good in the world, these are arguably much more important. And finally, Dylan points out that in his own Twitter feed, he says, I describe myself as a teacher, researcher, writer, mostly interested in the power of education to transform lives and how to do it better. And he closes by saying, I know of no better book about how this might be done than the one you hold in your hands. Close quote. So... Without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to be able to bring you a sneak preview of Guy's book in the form of a long-form conversation that I really enjoyed and that I strongly suspect, or at least hope, will set the cat among the pigeons in a really interesting, necessary way. Guy Claxton, welcome back to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you, James. Pleasure to be back with you. Yeah, my first return guest. So so the last time we spoke, we had quite an expansive conversation, as you will recall. It wasn't so long ago about learning to learn and metacognition and mindfulness and lots mm. of related ideas. Uh, and a fascinating conversation it was too. People really seem to, to strongly resonate with that one. And so if anybody is listening to this who hasn't heard that conversation, I heartily recommend that you do so at the next available opportunity. But it doesn't matter which order you uh, you listen to them in. So so today we're going to speak pretty much exclusively about your new book, mm. The Future of Teaching and the Myths That Hold It Back, which is it out yet or is it out this month? It's out this month on the 29th of April, all being well, yes. Right. So in two weeks. So yes. um, so let's start with just asking why did you write this book? Well, um it's been sort of bubbling in my head for for quite a while um a lot of my writing as people who know anything about me will know is kind of i write for things it's sort of advo advocational um and i've just spent about three or four years 
putting together with a variety of collaborators a series of four books around what I'm now calling the learning power approach, which is a kind of an amalgam of worldwide initiatives uh, about teaching in ordinary schools that can achieve both the objective of knowledge transmission and grades and university entrance and all those familiar things and the systematic deliberate developmental cultivation of certain mental habits which will stand people in good stead for for the rest of their lives which i uh, feel very strongly about that we that education should now anything that wants to call itself 21st century education should be looking for ways to ride both those horses at once not not the old either or but a bit of both and um and a, a lot of my writing has been in that kind of advocational mode but i was also very aware that um there's i was kind of puzzled by the intensity of the pushback against what seemed to me to be quite moderate and reasonable questions and explorations and suggestions and possibilities for achieving that kind of double-sided education. Um, so I, it just sort of it grew in me that somebody needed to <clears throat> take a good look at what those what what lies behind the sort of the apparent often quite surprisingly alarmingly hostile response to anything that some people perceive as being child-centered or progressive or there are a whole lot of boo phrases that people use trendy left-wing nonsense and you know all that kind of thing and it's like what you know what where does where does that come from mm, postmodern is one of the new ones that's been added to the boo list yeah yeah that's right that's right and um so so and, and also uh the thing that struck me about this particularly over the last few years say over the last five years or so that there's this this sort of neo-traditionalist voice has been claiming something very important which is that science is on their side that not they're claiming not only a sort of a moral or educational high ground but also scientific high ground so and i you know i'm trained as a cognitive scientist i've my defil from oxford in experimental psychology i you know i know all that stuff i read read that literature and i have another life outside education which is publishing as a cognitive scientist so i wanted to bring that side of me to bear on taking a taking a good look at where this antagonism comes from um, and that was really the stimulus so the future if you like the title of my book comes in two parts the future of education is the future of teaching sorry is the positive bit it's like what should that be what should that look like what values how do a set of values and a set of pedagogical principles um, mesh together if you like but then, and the myths that hold it back is, well, why is that not happening? You know, I, I know, and you know, you know, one of the schools that you've written about in your Fear is the Mind Killer book is, is one such school, that there are hundreds and hundreds of schools who have 
been doing this 21st century agenda, which is knowledge and skills, knowledge and dispositions, rigor and curiosity and imagination. I know, you know, the proof of concept is out there in dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds of schools, but it's not taking off fast enough. So, uh, I, you know, what, what I wanted to look at was these very powerful sounding scientifically based arguments. You know, science has shown that direct instruction is the only legitimate way, not just the sort of most effective way, but at some deeper level in terms of our understanding of the mind, the only legitimate way of going about teaching. And I thought, hold on a minute, you know, this this bears a bit of scrutiny. So that's what the book is, really. Mm, yeah, thank you. I mean, it is certainly a welcome addition. It's the book that I've been very excited about um, since I was lucky enough to, to read a sneak preview of it a few months ago. Mm. Um, and it's a very necessary um, counter set of counter arguments, really, to what has become this really prevailing view which um, is, has sort of been portrayed as like a groundswell against the sort of the era of edutainment, right? There was sort of, there was, mm. there was supposedly, well, not supposedly, there, there, there's like, like with many of these things, there was a grain of truth in it, right? There was, there was yeah, yeah. lots of, of well, we talked about this in our last conversation, there were lots of quite flaky practices that have been quite popular. Absolutely. In the yeah, past. Yeah. Um, and this is this has been seen that the, the wave of traditionalism has been has been seen as like a reclaiming of the center mm -hmm. ground, and it's been it's partly been sort of a, quite a populist uprising, if you want to use use those terms. Maybe mm -hmm. maybe you wouldn't, but um, you know, it certainly seems to have to have gained popularity among the teaching profession. This is not something that has come down from on high um, but also you know it's also very clear that, that the department for education and ofsted are very much on board with this with yes. this traditionalist um, language and lots of the lots of the the research that they cite comes from a very small pool of cognitive science Indeed um, it does. and so we'll, we'll get into all of that um, <clears throat> and i think that you were talking about the the, the confidence and the the, the declarative nature of this is like this is the final sort of and mm. this is the end of the story like traditionalist versus progressives the trads won as it were and there, yeah yeah you know, absolutely it's like there is only one right way and we've found it and so everything else does you know these phrases like doesn't work or you know discovery learning has been proved to fail and you know that that sort of language and it it, it offers a very you know, I don't know if this is part of the reason why why this neo-traditionalist view appeals to people, but it's very, it's black and white, it's very simplistic, it's almost fundamentalist in a way, like, it, you know, it carves the world into, you know, the good guys and the bad guys, and we're, we're the good guys. And I, you know, I suppose, and, and you're absolutely right, that, you know, there are, there are pluses and minuses, there have been lots of missteps in the, what's gone under the label of progressive education some of it has been flaky and ill-founded and not well based in in evidence and so on so the book is trying to say trying to if you like reclaim the middle ground which is just a little bit not a huge amount a little bit more nuanced a little bit more 
aware of the contingencies and the subtleties of what a good teacher does, you know, of responding to shifting moods and balances and the nature of the topic. You know, it's a complex, contingent, shifting job. And to try and boil that down to the one true way seems to me to be unhelpful and actually illegitimate. Yes, yes. And so in this conversation, we should we should look, pull out a few sort of key examples of this kind of language so that people know what we're talking about. And a, a good place to start would probably be a, a quote from a recent speech that Gavin Williamson, the, the current education secretary, gave um, to the Foundation for Education Development at their National Education Summit in, in March, so just a month ago. He said, we know much more now about what works best. Evidence-backed, traditional, teacher-led lessons with children seated facing the expert at the front of the class are powerful tools for enabling a structured learning environment where everyone flourishes, close quote. And so it is portrayed, and not just by Williamson, but elsewhere, as so like the science is in, and, mm -hmm. and often the, 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 sort of the smoking gun that's often held up, I saw it just in this week with, a, with a, an exchange on Twitter, was the, the, this paper by Kirshner, Sweller and Clark, which I know we'll get into later, um, which is like this, held as this sort of defining um, piece of evidence that, that yes. anything that isn't direct yeah. instruction, anything yeah. that's about, I think the, 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 in the title of that paper, it's like experiential, inquiry-based, discovery-based. It was like they yes. threw the net really Problem wide. Problem-based, the failure of, yes. know, yeah. of all of those things lumped together. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I think one of the oversimplifications, I mean, a, a, lot, of the, a lot of what's come out of, of the writing of this book is just the realization that it's, as I say, it, it's not helpful and it's not necessary to oversimplify things so much. It was Einstein, wasn't it, who said, we should try and make things as simple as possible, but not more, not more so. And I think there's been a bit of more so going on. So this is not a progressive fighting back against the traditionalists. This is hopefully a balanced, fair-minded overview of where this battle seems to have come from and how, how and why we should, we should adopt, we should celebrate a more nuanced view. And one of those oversimplifications is this around this sort of naive question of what works. You know, it's like we've discovered what works. And I don't think that's sort of syntactically or semantically sound as a as a as a project, because you can't decide what work what works or what's best practice until you've you've said for what? For what outcomes? So if we tacitly assume that it's all about you know that it's GCSEs and A levels and CAT scores and key stage two SATs, if those are the only things that we value, then it may well be that there, there are traditional methods might be effective ways of doing that. But nobody, nobody does just value that. You look at any school website and there will always be some rhetoric 
about preparing children to live in a world of uncertainty or helping young people fulfill their potential. Every school on the planet, I, I would claim, or almost every school, says, yes, we care about the knowledge and the grades and the transmissions, but we care about other things too. And if you start to factor those other things in, then it's less clear that the 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 old-fashioned, you know, the direct instruction thing is also good for achieving those objectives. It may well be that a, a method of teaching which which is good only for producing good test scores actually may may neglect or even damage the development of the other things that we said we valued. And it's only by a kind of myopia, a kind of amnesia, when we you know, get into the classroom, if we forget the importance of these other things that we said we valued and only look at test scores, then you know, only then can you, can you get into the world of those you know, simplistic answers to questions like what works. Otherwise, life is a little more complicated but it's also more real and it's also more humane, I think. Yeah, yeah. And on this on this question of what works, you just reminded me recently of that brilliant short book by Yong Zhao <clears throat> called What Works May Hurt. And he talks very simply about the idea of sort of main effects and side effects of education mm. and how like side effects aren't looked at. And so just to give like some simple exa examples, you know, um, if let's say you do a reading intervention where you're, you know, you're really sort of forcing kids to do reading at every possible opportunity and you're getting them to do lots of spelling tests and so on, you might well find that if you measure that later on, that, that a week later their reading scores have gone up, but it might turn them off reading, right? And so, but we're not, we're not looking at their love of reading over time. Yeah. And so, and those sorts of side effects, and you know, there are many examples yeah. and, of this. And can I just say that's not a might. That is a fact. When the National Literacy Strategy was evaluated by the NFER, they found exactly that, that reading ability had gone up slightly, but reading for pleasure had gone down markedly. Well, yeah. is that a tolerable side effect? It's a, that's a value judgment. You know. Absolutely. And that's why it comes back to values. And there's a number of examples. There's one, I remember a blog that Tom Sherrington um, wrote once about how he took over a physics class and I think the teacher was absent and there wasn't long before the exam and they just crammed. They did lots and lots of, of past papers. He described it as teach to the test to the max. And mm -hmm. he was like, they got an amazing set of results, but hardly any of them chose to do physics <laughs> the next mm -hmm. year, you know. Um, or for example, you know, the, a, a, argument that's raging again currently is this idea of silent corridors and people on one side are saying well but there's no bullying in this school because like bullying often happens in corridors there's zero bullying and nobody would argue that zero bullying is a, is a bad thing bullying is, is a horrendous thing and if you can eradicate it that's great but are there any side effects of this you know what what are the side effects of having silent corridors um, you know, these are questions that that aren't that, that don't seem to be up for discussion. And more widely, you know, like if you take a very zero tolerance approach to behaviour, so that the teacher is really sort of directing everything from the front of the room, um, both behaviourally and pedagogically, you know, what is the side effect of that in terms of you know how do this how do those young people uh, do when they go out into the world where there isn't this teacher yeah. sort of sergeant major figure who's telling them what to do and when and yeah. how all the time. 
that's yep. not a question that as far as I understand that people are even looking at with regard mm -hmm. to these schools that are taking, you know, very hard line uh, approaches and getting good results in the short term. You know, it, sure. are there costs to this? And if so, what are Absolutely. they? And, and these are open questions. We're not, I'm not making yep. a value judgment, but it's a very important question. It's an empirical, it's an empirical question. Um, Andrea Schlieker shows a startling slide often from the PISA uh, studies which shows if you look across, you know, the performance of different countries, the, the, the OECD countries, there's an inverse relationship between young people's achievement on the science tests and their enjoyment of or pleasure in or, or interest in pursuing science to a high level, an inverse relationship. So it's exactly the data supports, James, exactly what you've been saying. Yes, yeah. And, you know, there are also examples. Yong Zhao talked about this. I listened to a podcast with him this week about, you know, um, about suicide among young people being very high in some countries that have these cram cultures. Um, and, that's you know, some governments are suppressing the data on the extent to which this is even happening. Mm -hmm. So these are important. These are important questions. So, so, so just to just to outline the structure of the book for for listeners in each chapter you take a, an aspect of the debate i really like how it's organized so that like we'll come on to the chapter one in a moment chapter two is values chapter three is knowledge then there's one about thinking one about learning one about memory which i know um, we're going to get into um, and in each of these chapters you sort of outline what you um, describe as the the neo-traditional position and sometimes you describe as the neo-traditional myths or, or half-truths um, and then you deconstruct those views and offer counter arguments and counter narratives uh, as you say drawing on your extensive knowledge and understanding of the of the research literature uh, of cognitive science among among other um, areas of scholarship um, but and it's and it's a pleasure to read it really is and like you say I do think that you've done a good job of making it very mm, balanced and even-handed and I think that that even-handed um, approach comes across really strongly in chapter one where you start with where what you refer to as the punch and judy show or what other people sometimes refer to as like the education culture wars to use slightly mm. more grand terms this mm -hmm. idea of, of trads and progs and so on um and i think that that you write about the the prog trad debate or the prog trad distinction with more sort of sophistication and nuanced understanding than i have come across elsewhere um, and so there's a couple of examples that I think it might be useful to to pull out. There's a table in chapter one where you were talking about the differences between traditionalist and progressive views. And often it's quite a, like a subtle difference in emphasis. So in, in traditionalism, they, there's an emphasis on knowledge. In progressivism, there's an emphasis on whole child development. Mm. Um, or um, in terms of character, in traditionalism, the character is about sort of like seen as like good behavior, being disciplined. And on the progressive side, character is seen as about having an adventurous spirit. Or in, in traditionalism, there's a focus on achievement. In progressivism, there's a focus on development. And you can see that all of these things are good, right? <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. We want all of these things to be good. People on both Absolutely. sides have good. And, and I think you, you say in the introduction that you know there are no bad actors here. The people on either side of this debate. 
um you know i've all got the you know the best wishes in the in the world for for, for mm -hmm. young people um but what's interesting about the way that you frame this is that it sort of it lacks judgment you can see the value in both sides on the trad side there's an emphasis on written literacy often reading and writing and on the on the prog side there's an emphasis on on uh on talk and oracy and um and some people sort of don't even like this talk of sides. In my last conversation with with Kath Murdoch, she sort of said, "I don't want to talk. I don't want to be on a side." You know, like there are, there are. Mm. You know, most people would would say that they fall in the middle somewhere. But I do think that it's a, a useful distinction, the the trad prog distinction, partly because it's there are sort of well defined ideas. And what's interesting is that they cut across lots of different areas. So in terms of pedagogy, you've got sort of direct instruction versus, for example, inquiry based learning. In terms of curriculum, you've got the canon and knowledge rich, you know, curriculum mm. that's sort of taught and passing on the best of what's been thought and said. And on the other side, you've got, you know, the child, you know, expressing their own interest and in having a co constructed curriculum. And in terms of behavior. So so the, these sort of trad and prog sort of ideologies cut across a whole range of different issues. And it is a very useful distinction to to recognize that these different sets of ideas exist. I think that where it becomes unhelpful is when you become tribalistic and you just sort of say, I am a trad, I am mm. a prog. That's where it sort of breaks yeah. down as an idea. And your and your position is sort of defined by what you're by what you disparage or what you're what you're what you're against. Whereas I'm you know, I think I'm a kind of realist optimist. I want both and, you know, I think that's the grown up thing to want, um, is to want the best of both those worlds and to question the presumption that somehow or other these things are antagonistic. Like, for example, you know, and the sort of the misunderstandings that may underlie that this this sense of, of competitiveness or incompatibility between these two things. So, for for example, and this is leaping ahead a little bit, but um, some people say, you know, it's like if you're going to teach skills or what I would call dispositions or you know, 21st century skills or something that are in the classroom, then that must that necessarily must compete for time and attention and resource with teaching knowledge. There's some necessary incompatibility. And that comes from this idea that teaching skills is the same kind of thing as teaching someone their times tables. But actually, it's a different kind of learning. The cultivation of dispositions, the disposition to curiosity or creativity or attentiveness or a resilience or whatever it may be, these are habits of mind that are grown slowly, that are cultivated by the way you're doing what you're doing. So I have I, I, I talked in the previous conversation about this kind of my guiding image these days is of the kind of the levels of flow in a river. And these different kinds of learning are all going on simultaneously in the classroom, you know, on the surface, the knowledge is very visible, we can see what's going on at the knowledge level, but sort of further down in the river, you have things that are a bit more slippery and a bit more slow to evolve and to de and to develop. And those are the things like those are the, the 21st century skills, they're the skills at collaboration or metacognition or whatever it may be. So it's not a matter of, you know, we have to lop off 10 minutes of Shakespeare 
in order to do 10 minutes of learning to learn. That's just a misunderstanding of the kinds of learnings that are involved. It's, it's a layered approach rather than a, a, a competitive approach. And if you start with that different metaphor, then that problem disappears. It becomes, the problem becomes one of what kind of pedagogy, what kind of layered pedagogy enables us to accomplish or pursue those different aims, goals, objectives simultaneously mm. in the same room at the same time. Yes. Yeah. And I don't think that anybody would deny that, you know, that being really good at explaining things and having, you know, very good traditionalist direct instruction, explicit instruction um, tools in the toolkit is a, is a bad thing, right? Like it's oh, obviously it's really important that we do that. But there are these other. So just to elaborate that in case anybody ha hasn't come across that idea of the, the river of learning that you refer to. Mm. So you talk about there being three levels so that on the surface that's quite fast moving, there's knowledge. And then at a layer beneath that, there's skills which take a little bit longer to, to develop. So, for example, on the knowledge, it might be, you know, here's how to balance an equation. If you're doing that, then you're also strengthening your ability to, you know, to do mathematical reasoning and you're strengthening yeah. your numerical awareness, say. And then so that's at the skill level. And then beneath that, there's this even slower moving um, layer, which is where we think about things like character and dispositions. And what I think is so powerful about this this metaphor is that you can see that whatever you're doing pedagogically, whatever whatever approach to classroom practice you're using, you're, you, things are happening at all three of these layers. Mm -hmm. Whether you, if, even if you're only focusing on the on the first layer, yeah. and you think that it's all about knowledge, and we just need to get as much knowledge as we can in, you know, you are you are inculcating certain um, characteristics and yes. habits of mind among the among the, the young people. Um, yes. Whether the you like news. it. The bad news for the traditionalists is you can't not be teaching character. You are whatever whatever you're doing. You can either teach adding fractions plus confidence in experimentation and trying out your own ideas and trial and error, or you can teach adding fractions plus an increasingly a growing fearfulness of making mistakes and an addiction to the right answer. Mm. You know. And, and, and likewise, the thing about you can teach reading in a way that makes it anxious drudgery, or you can teach reading in a way that makes it a pure pleasure, a lifelong pleasure. So it's the, the necessity is to bring our awareness to what's going on at that other layer all the time in the classroom, however traditional or progressive or whatever it looks like, and to say, are the habits which I'm implicitly encouraging down at the bottom of the river are they the ones that i really think are going to stand youngsters in the best stead when they go out into the big wide world yes yeah and that's the choice and even here i think that your treatment of this is very even-handed because you, you know somebody listening to this might think oh they're just implying that that all the character traits that are developed through traditionalism are bad like compliance and obedience and all of the character traits that are developed through progressivism are good like being independently spirited and questioning and, and critical and so on but there's another table which if, if i may i just I'll, I'll share it briefly because mm, yes. i think it's very powerful and it's this is from chapter two 
two, uh, the, the chapter about values, and you talk about the, the habits of mind that are considered to be the bright side and the shadow side of both traditionalists and progressives. So on the traditionalist side, the habits of mind that are bright, the bright side are things like we're creating young people who are knowledgeable, studious, industrious, disciplined, conscientious, independent readers and thinkers, and they're dispassionate, for example, they've got a love for the knowledge. And the shadow side of traditionalism, uh, you describe things like being, you know, these young people might turn out to be unimaginative, they might turn out to be what you refer to as certaholics, some people who sort of like addicted to certainty, young people who are credulous, who are dependent, who are extrinsically motivated, we might we might include compliant in that list, disputatious, mm. and so on. And so we can see that that's a nice way of putting it, this the bright and shadow side of traditionalism. And then if I'll, I'll just do the same thing for your treatment of progressivism. So on the bright side of progressivism, we have things like curiosity, collaboration, imagination, self-reliance, empathy, resourcefulness, intellectual humility, something that I certainly talk about a lot. So I can see I can certainly see my own biases playing out in this table. And then on the shadow side of progressivism, we have, you know, you know, if we teach in this way, we're going to create young people who are self-indulgent, who are undisciplined, irresponsible, feral, flighty, undiscerning, flaky, you know. And so I, I think that this is a, a very balanced view where you, you seem to have sort of zoomed out and you're mm -hmm. saying like we can see this thing from both sides and actually when you do that it it just becomes really obvious that the only sort of adult sensible approach to this is one of balance the aristotelian mm -hmm. uh you know approach to the middle way it's obvious yeah. that there are pros and cons on both sides and that if you go too far in one direction you're going to sort of accentuate you know one side yeah. against the other yeah and when you but the, the, the trouble comes when you're locked in to a tribal when you when you have a tribal identity and this happens to progressives as well as traditionalists you only see the bright side of your side and the shadow side of the other side so you don't give the if you're if you're locked into being a progressive you're all for the curious and the collaborative and the imaginative and the self-reliant and the only thing you see about the traditionalists is you know that they're creating youngsters who are frightened of making mistakes and addicted to right answers and so on so you just you, you get a lot so, so it's not surprising that people end up talking past each other that this becomes you know one of those arenas in which you know more heat than light is generated because your perception is being um you, you you're suffering from a kind of tunnel vision you, you know, you only see what's what's desirable about your side and what's undesirable about the other. And that, and that leads to unproductive and increasingly unprepossessing, hostile, belligerent kinds of interactions. And I think, you know, we're all better than that, really. Yeah, yeah. There certainly is more more heat than light, and, I can, and here you know you can see why it is that this is sometimes referred to as the educational culture wars, because you can see how mm. it's a kind of microcosm of how entrenched and tribal 
you know, people have become partly because of the way that algorithms work on the internet and that we create these echo chambers or have these echo chambers created around us, um, which is, you know, there's a, there's a lot to say about that. But I think it's fair to say there's a, there's a lovely foreword by Dylan William, who is, uh, plays an interesting role in this book because he seems to sort of straddle these two worlds. And, uh, and it's a very interesting read, his foreword. And I know that you've known him for a long time, but essentially mm. the idea is that famous phrase of Joe Cox, you know, that we have more in common than that which divides us. And actually, let's just embrace the common ground yep. and, and work towards some sort of a Hegelian synthesis, you know, of these worlds. This is not a sort of a punch and Judy situation. There is fruitful common ground to be held, like you say, where we can create pedagogies that include aspects of traditionalist approaches and that include aspects of progressivist approaches where the teachers have agency and autonomy to do what they what they feel is necessary to meet the right. needs of the young people in front of them and this isn't some kind of wishy-washy compromise it's a genuine hegelian synthesis between the thesis and the and the antithesis yet when you're stuck in your tribal identity the only way you can think about this kind of suggestion is as a kind of compromise, as a weakening of your own position. So, you know, part of the function of this book is to try and stand above the fray, if you like, um, and be able to see a bit more clearly what a, what a more rounded and nuanced pedagogy would look like. Yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward <laughs> to seeing how this plays out in the coming weeks and months. I know that there's a lot of uh, of interest in this book coming out and, um, you know, I've seen people writing about, about it already in the, the talks that you've given and the the excerpts that have been published and so on. So mm. I'm really looking forward to seeing how this how this plays out. And I, I dearly hope that this can build a coalition of, of people in the thoughtful sort of middle of this, you know, who don't identify strongly with one tribe or another, which, you know, those people are in the minority, although they're very vocal. Um, but, you know, there is a, a, a silent, thoughtful majority in the middle who who, who I think are very interested in, in you know, realising yeah. this, this synthesis that you describe. And the, those, those are the people who, the, who this book is written for. You know, I don't think my book will be of much interest to people who are completely plugged into their tribal identity. The, the, the important job that my book tries to do is to give back to teachers who have been a bit browbeaten by these very strong claims of the scientific mandate for a single method of teaching, to give back to them their confidence in, in the nuance, in the multiplicity, the, 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 the need for flexibility in teaching. So I'm, you know, I, I want to be talking to and encouraging the 95% of the teachers, the world's teachers, who are, um, who are open-minded about what a 21st century pedagogy would look like. Uh, and what it would be like. And I think, you know, and there will be other people from both wings, from both progressive and traditional wings, who are going to um, disparage the book, and I w will happily live with that. Yeah, of course. Well, some people do very well out of taking a strong position, don't you? And it's often hard to persuade somebody to, to take a view when they're 
when their income <laughs> depends on them not <laughs> uh, not doing so. Okay, so so let's get into knowledge. Um, the first one, which is obviously very central to to lots of, of thinking around the, this neo traditionalist um, way of of seeing things. Um, so there are a number of sort of of points and counterpoints. Um, that you outline in the book. Let's start with with this idea of, of facts and the extent to which knowledge is is synonymous with facts. So just as an example, there's a there's a, a quote from a famous book, which I don't know whether this was sort of consciously whether you you know there was that fit, the the book by Daisy Christodoulou, Seven Myths About mm, Education. Yeah. I don't know whether whether that was in your thinking when you sort of this is called the myths that hold it back. Whether this was a sort of a counter myths mm-hmm. um, thing, but but in that in that book by Daisy, so she says, um, long term memory is capable of storing thousands of facts. And when we have memorized thousands of facts on a specific topic, these facts together form what is known as a schema. If we already have a lot of facts in a particular schema, it's much easier for us to learn new facts about that topic. The aim of fact learning is not just to learn one fact, it is to learn several hundred. And then she gives an example. So for example, learning the dates of 150 historical events from 3000 BC to the present day, and learning a couple of key facts about why each event was important will be of immense use because it will form the fundamental historical schema that is the basis of all historical understanding. That's the end of the quote. So what, what's your take on this? this uh, the, the extent to which knowledge is presented as just a, a, like a vast repository of factual information? Um, it just, it, it seems to me, I mean, there's a lot um, that we could say about that, but it just seems to me not to do knowledge justice to reduce it to a, a, like a, a, to see it as a collection of facts and to then finesse everything that's interesting about understanding. It's interesting that some of the more um, rigid writings in this neo-traditionalist view they talk a lot about knowledge, but they don't talk much about understanding. Actually, you, you know, you can look at the indexes in some of these books and there's nothing about understanding or comprehension. Uh, and that's, a, you know, again, I think it's a, it's unfortunate oversimplification. You know, knowledge comes in many forms. There's knowing how, there's knowing that. There are, you know, there are maxims. There are forms of intuitive expertise that you can't explain. There are memories and impressions. There are the knowledge that is contained in intuitions or the knowledge that is contained in aesthetic reactions to things. I mean, I've in my life as a cognitive scientist, I've written several books about non-intellectual forms of intelligence or, you know, a, a recent book is called Intelligence in the Flesh, yes, which is about the epistemological validity of bodily feelings and intuitions they are part of cognition can you explain what you, you know? mean by epistemological validity <laughs> <laughs> for my benefit as well as for listeners when i'm watching a good play a good drama on the television i am being told things but i'm not experiencing them in an intellectual way i am i am receiving those teachings, if you like, through other media. I say I was touched by something. 
I was moved by something. Now being touched and moved by things, by a poem or by a picture or by a drama, these these are valid. These are these have meaning. You know, they're 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 full of meaning, pregnant with meaning, which I may or may not be able to unpack, you know, as we're my wife and I are on the bus driving, you know, back going across London to our flat after having been to a good play or a good movie, we're struggling to unpack and articulate what it is that touched us or moved us about the uh, the presentation. What have we learned? What have we been taught? And to kind of treat the whole domain of knowledge as if it were necessarily explicit, discrete, discrete in the sense of separate, cut and dried, and it's almost like, almost like you know knowledge is, it's like a sort of you know a lorry load of bricks dumped on your front lawn, right? It's like this sort of mass of facts, and then in that quotation from Daisy, it's it's almost as if you know it's like and then a miracle happens, you know if you dump enough bricks on your front lawn they will magically turn themselves into a house, you know as if but that but the way in which knowledge gets built into understanding is the, is what is of interest. It's the most interesting thing about education and about learning. And yet some of the neo-traditionalists seem to have little to say about the intricacies and the subtleties of that process. My DPhil at Cambridge was called the roles of perception and memory and verbal comprehension. So, you know, way back in the early 1970s, I was working with, you know, new theories of psycholinguistics to help us understand how what we have existing in our memories gets retrieved and modified and questioned and, and assimilated into what we're understanding. It's an organic process. It, and, and all of that necessary complexity seems to be missing from the neo-traditionalist approach to knowledge. Okay, so you're painting a picture of knowledge that's recognising that knowledge has many different forms. So you were talking about, you know, there's rote knowledge and factual knowledge, maxims, expertise, memories, impressions that you can get, like you were talking about embodied cognition, knowledge uh, that isn't just cognitive, feelings, emotions, intuitions, also knowledge of self, which is something that I think is often missing. Mm -hmm. And so when people are referring to what they what is often described as a knowledge rich curriculum, you have to ask the question, how much of this richness is actually yeah. represented in that knowledge rich curriculum? Um, yeah, you could say it's actually knowledge poor, because it's preoccupied only with a very, very restricted conception of what knowledge is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a there is a really interesting conversation to be had here, which maybe isn't, uh, you know, the, the t this is, might not be the time to do it. But there's, a, there's this question around knowledge versus understanding um, and the extent to which, you know, is understanding just deep knowledge? Or is it something that emerges from from knowledge, but is sort of qualitatively different? Um, and that's a I don't know if you have anything to say to that, but that's a, a very complicated 
um, conversation to have. There's there's a really good episode of Ollie Lovell's podcast where he talks to Jay McTai, um, who wrote a book Understanding by Design. They had sort of mm. different ideas of, of of knowledge and understanding. What, what's your what's your sort of understanding of the difference between knowledge and understanding? Well, it's it's such a it's such a tangled web, really. Um, it's it's difficult to know how to how to get into it. I mean, knowledge for me, the word knowledge is is at, at one level. I mean, it's such a it's a slippery concept. That's the trouble. It means lots of different things to lots of different people. For example, in the foreword that that Dylan, my old friend Dylan William, wrote for my book, one of the things he does is he muses on the fact that perhaps he should have been more explicit about the fact that to him the most important aspect of the knowledge that we deal with in schools is not knowing that but it's knowing how you know it's what what the cognitive scientists call procedural knowledge yeah yet you don't get much sense of that from a lot of the neo-traditionalist writing there is this presumption that by knowledge we mean knowing that, we mean declarative knowledge rather than procedural knowledge. So I just think it's a very, you know, I mean, it's 2,000 years of philosophy that that I'm not I'm not going to try and solve in the next 60 seconds, James. No, I mean, we do need to recognise, and one of the things that you, you say in this book is that you're trying to reintroduce some complexity, and that's what I think that the reason that I recently had Adam Boxer on the podcast is I think because following our first conversation, I tweeted out something like neo-traditionalism sells this sort of attractively simple story that like learning is memory and we just need to double down on this particular approach to to um teaching and all will be well and that this is how to you know to do the best for disadvantaged kids in particular mm -hmm. and i said i sort of said like if only it were true um and he took exception to that and it end ended up with us having quite a quite a complicated and interesting conversation but it but you, what you're trying to do is to reintroduce some of this complexity and say like this we're being sold a pup here. It's not as easy as some people are making out. Sure. And let's just let's just come up with there's three sort of areas in three ways in which knowledge is sort of is is portrayed. I think in in the traditionalist way. So one is this, the the idea that the ability to think about something emerges naturally from knowing lots about that thing, and yeah, which I think is just false. Can you can you expand on that? Well, you can know lots lots. You can know lots about things, but not but not really understand them. You know, you can parrot them. You know, I I spent a lot of my time in a in the particular school that I was in, reciting every day the Lord's Prayer. I knew it, but I didn't understand it. I didn't have any sense of you know what its implication was, how to how I could paraphrase it. You know, I was just parroting it. So it's just, you know, it's blatantly obvious to me that you can know things without understanding them. And sometimes Ernest Hemingway said, the little that each man learns, take, you know, it's very precious because it takes a lifetime. Each man or woman, he said man, but each person learns is precious because it's like it's a precious distillate of our, of our experience. And, you know, you know, I mean, everybody I suspect knows in their own lives that their understanding of many things slowly deepens and enriches as they go through life. So it's not just something like knowing that the Battle of Hastings occurred in a particular year. 
it's like you know that's scratching barely scratching the surface of what it is that we're talking about and the idea that somehow or other it you know if you know enough if you sort of pile enough of this stuff into long-term memory that it, <coughs> that it will sort of automatically assemble itself like if you buy enough lego <clears throat> a miracle will happen and it will turn itself into an amazing construction it's just nonsense psychologically it's just nonsense yeah you know turning knowledge into understanding is something that is a process and it's a it's a complicated process yes and as i said a while ago it's a process that involves the body it involves you know feelings and values and perceptions just as much as cognitions yeah yes and linked to this is a similar idea that you have to know a lot about something before you can think about it um which you also describe as false and you say that's like secure knowledge and understanding generally arise from thinking about things and discussing them mm. and reflecting on them um there's a lot more to it than 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 uh knowing than just simply knowing um and the third one that again is related to this is this idea that knowing lots makes you clever Mm. Well, that's, I think that's just a semantic confusion. You know, we have separate words. We have a, not even a very rich vocabulary uh, with which to talk about these things. You know, and, and, and we, dis, we make a distinction between being well-informed, being clever, being intelligent, and being wise, let's say. You know, these words mean different things. Being knowledgeable is not the same thing as being intelligent. In fact, there's a lot of work in cognitive science or real world decision making, which shows that sometimes the more knowledge you have, the less intelligent you are. You may become paralyzed by the knowledge that you have, or overburdened by it, or over respectful of it, mm. or you lose touch with your own intuition. As you know, what happened in the, you know, the revolution about, you know, parents and parent and baby books people lost their sense of themselves by trying by reading too many books about things they became more knowledgeable about child rearing but less good at it as a result of amassing all this knowledge so it's just bloody obvious that being knowledgeable is not the same thing as being intelligent i'm sorry david didal they're not the same thing Yes. Okay. And and the the other thing that you talk about in this in this part of the book is about how the traditionalist curriculum. It's about that the what is being taught. And at one point, you said the traditionalist curriculum leaves no room for things like robotics, outsider art, epigenetics, the Panama Papers, Bayes' theorem, all things that I think we probably have lots of shared interests. All things that I find super interesting. But they're not up for discussion. They're not. They're not on the traditionalist curriculum, and it's it's fascinating to me that that it's just sort of like coincidental that the 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 existing traditionalist subject curriculum yeah. is the best of what has been thought and said, and it's not up for discussion. Mm -hmm. Um. So I'd be interested to hear if you have anything to 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 add to that. Well, I, I just. I mean, uh, I I um, borrow a lot from. You know, one of the one of the people who I've learned a lot from in this area, David Perkins uh, at Harvard, who has a, a wonderful book. I'm just seeing if I can see it on my 
bookshelves to, to remind myself of the of the title of it. Is this... I think it's called Future Wise, um, and I can't remember the subtitle, but it's a very accessible and thoughtful and open-minded and nuanced exploration of what is it that most young people are likely to need to know in the course of their lives. And that's a really, really difficult question because there are all kinds of things that have a prima facie claim on, you know, being knowledgeable. You've, you've mentioned some of them. Um, David has in, in, in his book a sort of, he just puts together like an A to Z of topics and I've created a different version of that in my book. You know, but all the things like, you know, how, how, do, how do tools work? you know, lots of tools in everyday life, practical knowledge of, you know, how your toilet works or, you know, how your fridge works or how your bicycle light works. What about democracy? Surely we, we all ought to know something about democracy. What about blockchain? I don't know much about blockchain, but I know it's a damn important thing. Yeah. And, you know, and I would want my children to know a bit about it. What about financial dealings and the financial collapse and the, the, the credit crunch. What about neuroscience? What about uh, big data? There was a, a conference at Stanford that I write about in the, in, in the book a little while ago, which was where they were exploring how important an understanding of all the interesting and potentially worrying things that can be done with big data that you can make perfectly accessible to, to, to children. You know, so I think there are all kinds of things that I would think if I stand back from the curriculum and take a fresh look at what it is, you know, if I had children, which I don't, you know, what it is that I would think would be, uh, you know, in their knowledge backpack and we're just, just talking about knowledge here, not even skills and dispositions and that stuff. The stuff the sort of Herschian, you know, what is it that it would be useful for them to have some understanding of and some knowledge of? I think a lot of the, you know, the time-honoured, timeless verities of the curriculum would fight very hard to hold their place in the curriculum if you started from that fundamental question. Yeah. I would love to have that conversation and to open that to to open that up. Um, I mean, there's so there's so much that we could say about this, but I know that there's a lot to get through in this conversation. Um, mm. But I the, there's a really interesting treatment of Hirsch's work in this chapter and of Michael Young, who you're also um, critical of in in really interesting ways. Um, but I think that the essential point here is that to to simply assert that the content of the of the traditional curriculum as it currently stands is all that young people need is just not really okay. It's not acceptable. It seems to be quite lazy, mm -hmm. um, and it's just sort of quite convenient that that we're already doing the best possible job we could do. We just need yes. to jolly jolly well keep on with the show. Yes. Um, you know there are some 
fascinating and I would argue urgent questions to be had here. And for, for me, and this won't come as a surprise to you or to any listeners, you know, the most important knowledge of all is knowing how to learn stuff under your own steam, you know, like knowing what your strengths mm-hmm. are and knowing what to do when you don't know what to do and all of that stuff. Having those dispositions towards being happy with with um, with uncertainty and having a questioning and critical mindset, that kind of knowledge that's about character uh, character building is mm. is gonna gonna be so much more useful to young people in the future than knowing you know um uh, 150 dates from history um, embedded into their into their long-term memory as valuable as that may be you know it's not it's not yeah. a, a be-all and end-all thing yeah absolutely and i you know i i had several very interesting and amicable lunches with michael young while i was preparing this book in which we 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 tried we genuinely tried to understand each other's perspectives um and i think failed to (laughs) to 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 some extent because i think he's you know his idea of powerful knowledge you know okay you know there is a sense in of, of i can understand somewhat you know what he's fighting but to me i think he's fighting a whole lot of sort of old sociological battles for me if i you know the phrase powerful knowledge to me means knowledge that gives you the power to do things you know it's empowering and it's not clear to me that everybody that the periodic table for example or the you know the formula for photosynthesis is is genuinely empowering for all young people. You know, for me, it's a big question whether that passes the Perkins test. Is this something that the majority of young people are likely to need to know in the lives that they are likely to need in the context of all the other things that are jockeying for position in the curriculum? Like the curriculum contains 0.001% of or whatever the figure might be of all the things that are known and it jolly well you know it should have a fight on its hands to justify itself against all these other competing things i mean my favorite would be neuroscience cognitive neuroscience and you know and understanding how our minds and our brains and our bodies work together if i was restarting a curriculum from scratch knowing everything that we now know um about uh how human beings work i would want to put that in the curriculum and i my bet would be that young people would find it absolutely fascinating and important yeah yeah i agree Right, let's um, move on to memory. This is also, you know, a cornerstone of of traditionalist or neo-traditionalist um, rhetoric and understanding as to, you know, what the science tells us about how best to teach. And often we hear this this word, the arch- the cognitive architecture of the mind, um, which is really central to the argument. And earlier. I mentioned that paper by Kirshner, Sweller and Clark, 2006 mm. paper, um, which um, 
and I'll, I'll quote from it briefly because I think that this is this is going to give a, a very sort of clear idea as to what it is that the it's, it's a, probably the clearest sort of expression of this view. So they write based on our current knowledge of human cognitive architecture, minimally guided instruction is likely to be ineffective. The past half century of empirical research on this issue has provided overwhelming and unambiguous evidence that minimal guidance during instruction is significantly less effective and efficient than guidance specifically designed to support the cognitive processing necessary for learning. Human cognitive architecture is concerned with the manner in which our cognitive structures are organized. Most treatments of human cognitive architecture use the Atkinson and Schifrin sensory memory, working memory, long-term memory, the so-called tripartite model, as their base. Long-term memory is now viewed as the central dominant structure of human cognition. And it goes on to say the architecture of long-term memory provides us with the ultimate justification for essentially direct instruction. Close quote. Mm. Well, where do we start? I think the, 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 the place that I want to start in thinking about memory is the role of metaphor. Memories, we, through the history of people's thinking about memory from Plato forwards, and I've written, I wrote about this a long time ago, has revolved around what kind of metaphor, what gives us a handle. This is the way science progresses. You know, you come up with a metaphor. Is the atomic structure a bit like a miniature solar system? Well, let's play with that and see if, see if that gets us anywhere. And that's what's happened with memory. I mean, for me, the, the first thing that strikes me about, about the argument that you just said is the use of the word architecture. Architecture itself in this context is a metaphor. You know, you think of architecture and you think, what do you think of? You know, I immediately think of the Parthenon, something that has stood for 2,000 years or more, uh, more or less intact. You know, it doesn't reconfigure itself every day. It's solid, it's monolithic. So that repeated use of the word architecture is itself asserting that um, memory is, is that kind of thing, that the model of the mind is a model of something that is solid and structural and fixed. Then into that comes the second metaphor, which is the metaphor of memory as a store. Memory isn't a store. There aren't different boxes. You know, it's not like a, your brain is, your mind is not like a warehouse with lots of things stacked together neatly. There aren't boxes in the head. Even the father of cognitive psychology, Ulrich Neisser, back in the 1970s, was, a, was, was poking fun at what he called the, the, the trend towards boxology in psychology to think that you'd actually made some substantial theoretical process by drawing a whole lot of boxes, labeling them, and drawing arrows between them, as if that had somehow or other done the job. But of course it hasn't, because all the interesting stuff is in the arrows. And all the interesting stuff is in how does this, what's going on? You know, you open the, you know, take the top off someone's head and you don't see a little box, you know, a narrow, 
tube labeled working memory and another great big thing, big box labeled long-term memory. Mm. The use of the word memory itself, I think, is problematic because I think some people, it has led some people to conflate memory as a hypothetical repository of what we know with the idea of mem of a memory, of something that is memorized. So I think there's that word encourages, that's, that's why I think there's a lot of play around this idea, the importance of long-term memory and working memory, because I think it, it seems to give a spurious legitimacy, certainly in some people's writing, to the idea that memory is full of memories and that memories are things that you've memorized. And that's just bad science, you know, it's like it's, it's shoddy use of language to slide between those different meanings. Yet I fear some of the neo-traditionalists have been doing exactly that kind of sliding. That's why the concept of memory as a store seems to have captured their imagination. But if you look, you know, I mean, I, uh, again, had several meetings. I mean, I, the, the pr preparation of this book was a delight for me because it enabled me to have conversations with people who I hadn't spoken to for a long time or had never spoken to but wanted to speak to. And one of them was Alan Baddeley, who's the sort of the surviving godfather mm. of working memory. Now, even since the late 1900s, the, the model of, of memory that he's worked with, you know, I mean, he is the memory man. His autobiography is called Working Memory because he's been working at memory for his whole for his whole life. You know, for the last 20 or 30 years, that simplistic idea, that picture that Daniel Willingham, I think, rather unfortunately used in one of his books and labeled it just about the most simple model of the mind that you could have. Yeah. Well, Dan, I think that's, you know, this is the Einstein error. I think it's, you know, we should make things as simple as possible, but not more so. And I think that model makes memory more simple and has been rather mischievous in leading people into this idea that somehow or other everything has to be squeezed through this narrow vestibule called working memory. And that if you if there's too much of it, then you then you overload cognition. And then there comes this bit of the argument that I still don't really understand, which says, but if you've crammed lots of stuff into long term memory, somehow that makes the constriction of this tube matter less. Now, so where's the model behind that? You know, now Alan Baddeley could probably give you a, a much more complex and nuanced answer. He, the, his model of memory now has a whole lot of different elements to it, not just the simplistic one that has been sold to teachers as being the definitive model. And it's still a work in progress as far as Alan is concerned. And he's, you know, even older than I am um, and is still going strong uh, in, in researching these topics up at the University of York now. Mm. Um, you know, he has a, he's had to introduce something that he calls the episodic, episodic buffer, which is separate from working memory, but it's a way in which things can access long-term memory without going through working memory. Yet 
that's not the image which is being purveyed by the neo-traditionalists as if somehow or other this image, this metaphor for memory was completely um, determined, completely unequivocal, and led a, leads us to the conclusion somehow or other that direct instruction is the only viable or efficient or effective way of teaching. I think there's, there's a, 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 I try to untangle some of these arguments and misconceptions, but it's like it's a whole nest. It's like a, you know, a tangled ball of wool of trying to pick these assumptions apart and say, actually, the conclusion doesn't follow. Yes. The conclusion that direct instruction is the only legitimate way of teaching does not follow from what we know about cognitive science. I mean, for the last 20 years, what, you know, people are much more comfortable now talking about working memory as a process within the brain. It's not a box. It's the way in which the brain cunningly deploys different patterns of excitation and inhibition within long-term memory in order to keep itself on track when it's trying to do something difficult that has lots of different threads to it. It's a dynamic activity that is deployed within long-term memory, if you want to call it that, rather than a box that is separate from long-term memory. Yes. That's much more, to my reading of the literature, much more the architecture, although we wouldn't use that word, because it's a much, now it's a much more organic image and a much more dynamic image of what's going on between people's ears than the, the Parthenon image, which underlies some of the pronouncements that we've been talking about. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> there's, a lot to, there's a lot to this. I mean, so just to go back to what your initial point about metaphor, it seems to me that even that, that initial, that tripartite model that we were looking at, where we're looking at this idea of the distinction between a working memory and a long-term memory, was itself based on a metaphor of like the mind as a computer yep. and that the, there's like a hard drive, which is the long-term memory. And then there's the RAM, the random access memory, I believe it stands for, which is sort of like mm. the working memory, the bit that, you know, it sort of does the work, if you like. Um, yeah. Working memory is some sort of conflation of the central processing unit and the RAM, I think. And then long-term memory corresponds to your hard drive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you were saying that this, this idea of a store is also a metaphor that's going out of fashion and that there are other quite different but highly credible ways of looking at how memory works. Could you possibly sort of just give some indication? I know it's hard to do this in a conversation and I really recommend people read this chapter, the, well, the whole book, but can you, can you explain some sort of examples of like alternative ways of, of thinking about how memory works? Well, I've, I've alluded it to her already. I, I'm completely convinced that we make more progress. We get closer to saying things that are accurate and useful. If we talk in what Donald Hebb, a great psychologist, wrote an incredibly formative and prescient book in 1949 called The Organization of Behavior, what he called conceptual nervous system language. Of course, the brain itself is far too minute and far too complex to unpick. 
But if we talk in a kind of biological language about what's going on in the brain, we get closer to being able to think about concepts like the difference between knowing and understanding. For example, when I was doing my studies in my graduate studies, the distinction between declarative and procedural knowledge was very important, like two different kinds of memory. But actually, when you look at the brain, there isn't a, a store of things called declarative knowledge. All there is is a whole lot of neurons that light up from time to time. And sometimes when they light up, you have the experience of knowing something, of knowing that the capital of France is Paris, right? But that doesn't mean it's naive to suppose that, that there is a little kind of ticket or a little something or other inside your head which corresponds directly to that little piece of knowledge. The brain isn't, you know, we're back to the, the, the issue of facts. The brain isn't a collection of facts. It's an incredibly complex, tangled network of inherently active biological material. And now if we try and model that, we get a bit closer, I think, to being able to say interesting things about what's going on in people's minds when they're learning. You know, when we can talk about, people talk a bit loosely these days about having dopamine moments or serotonin moments or um, having an amygdala hijack. There's a, there's a, a way in which this language can be trivialized and debased but we, you know, we know a lot more than we did, you know, when back in 1968, when I was finishing my undergraduate degree and Atkinson and Schifrin were coming out with their model of memory. We know a lot more now and we can get closer to the actual biological machinations of what's going on in our brain minds than that Oh, that old model, which is well past its sell-by date. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that maybe the simplest way to put it is to go back to that idea from Nicer about boxology. Like, there are no boxes in the brain. Mm, <laughs> if you look mm. at what's going on in the brain, it's like this insanely complicated, um, you know, dynamic moving process. And one of the things that's often missing from, you know, that boxology uh, approach is, the concept of time, you know, like like your like working memory is a a tied up with the, the idea of attention. It's the sort of this attentional mm -hmm. space, yeah. And that moves through time. And so if you think like you know like the working memory is limited to seven, you know, bits of information, and then it becomes overwhelmed and you're overloaded. How then can you watch a film, you know, in which like this three hours long, yeah, sure, where loads and loads of Absolutely. stuff happens and all of that stuff passes seamlessly through this supposedly. Yeah tiny little bottleneck that becomes so easily overwhelmed um, and uh, what you were talking about and the, the metaphors that they go on to use that scientists you know you talk about this idea of soft assembly which I don't really understand but it's sort of this process where um, like sort of coalitions yeah. of, of activity are sort of networked together in the way that brains are like, so distributed and very almost like creative in the way that the, the functions are distributed throughout a brain and how the, how much they differ from one one person to the next. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about something that's that's simple here, but I do want to try and keep the conversation on something that's doing. You know, we could go into some very technical uh, level stuff, but um, you know, I'm very aware of of you know we're, we're wanting to talk to to busy teachers here who haven't you know got yeah. um, lots of time um, to to be you know 
understanding these new sort of complex ideas of transient patterns of functional connectivity and stuff we're going to lose people if we start to, to, to use the, the the language of cognitive science when we're talking about memory as it relates to to the learning of children in classrooms but we can bring it back down to some of the some of these sort of common ideas that are expressed in the traditionalist view so one of the things that you say in the book is you say that there's this idea that everything that we learn has to go through this limited capacity short-term store mm. and you you say no it doesn't could you expand on that? Well, I, I think what the, the, the whole thing about cognitive load is sort of piggybacks on this, um, to my mind, antiquated model of memory with this kind of, you know, narrow tube that everything's got to be squeezed through. Um, and actually, I think, you know, things, things are not, you know, teachers' common sense is probably at least as good, perhaps even a better guide to what's going on in classrooms. If you tell people things that don't have much connection with what they already know, and you tell them those things fast, they're going to struggle. Of course they are. You can't assimilate them into what you already know. Or if you do, you might make you might make some mistakes or some simplistic things. I mean, we should remember that these the, this model, the Atkinson and Schifrin and the uh, the original um, Baddeley and Hitch models of of memory, short term memory and long term memory, were derived from highly artificial masses of experiments within highly artificial paradigms that used random digits or random words as the stimuli on which these models were built. And they were chosen as the stimuli to examine in these things precisely because they didn't mean anything to anybody, precisely because they were almost impossible to make sense of. You know, when you're you know, trying to remember someone tells you a phone number over the phone, it's hard to embed that in your brain because there are no pre-existing structures to make sense of why it's 176453 rather than 134567. Right? There, there's no supportive body of experience or understanding which enables you quickly to get a handle on what that's about. So of course you have to use rather odd strategies like repeating it to yourself under your breath and so on. Mm. So when you start to think about what's going on when people are understanding ordinary language as we're doing now in this conversation, it's light years away. What's going on is light years away from trying to hold on to a random string of words that were precisely designed to be meaningless. So what we're trying to do is to take models of memory which were designed to account for very artificial and arcane experimental findings and stretch them way beyond the context of their original use. Yes to understand the complexities of what's going on in 30 young minds in a classroom. And that is several bridges too far. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And so related to this, I've, I've, I've often seen this referred to by bloggers, but also by teachers in schools that they, they you often see, you know, uh, the uh, Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, mm -hmm. um, which is referred to. And, you know, in the, in the book, you, you mentioned there was a blogger who wrote about Ebbinghaus having shown that over half of newly learned knowledge is forgotten in a matter of days unless revisited. But as you say, this is based on people's ability to learn nonsense syllables, meaningless little units like foz or zik. Uh, you say almost no research and education since around the 70s have, has made use of nonsense syllables precisely because they pl place such peculiar demands on memory that are unrelated to those of the classroom. Yeah. And then you, you conclude that section by saying Ebbinghaus's research does not apply except when we are made to learn complete nonsense. And, and then you, as the final point, you say uh, these ideas are nevertheless widely quoted and recycled in the professional educational world and among uh, traditionalist writers in particular yeah. and are for the most part uncritically accepted. Yes, and 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 misused, you know, to justify, again, some people's preconceptions about, you know, what good teaching looks like or what good teaching ought to look like. You know, yes, in classrooms, kids encounter, particularly in maths and science. And I think one of the things that I became quite clear to me in writing this book was that maths and science are not good prototypes for the whole curriculum yeah yet they're often used like the, the um kirshner sweller and clark paper sweller's work on cognitive load derived originally and is most applicable to the kind of formal formalized symbolic problem solving that you find in mathematics and in some areas of science. What goes on in an English classroom where you're trying to tease out the depth and the meaning of the intention behind D.H. Lawrence's poem, The Snake, is entirely different. It's, it's an entirely different kind of thing. You know, because you are, you're drawing on your experience of snakes, of fear, of misconception, of all kinds of things. And even in science and maths, progress is made. Uh, we, we've seen this example when we've been talking about memory. Progress is made very often, almost inevitably, through the use of metaphors. And what is a metaphor? It's a way of trying to bend what you already know to provide a working model of something that you don't yet understand. So we, we understand, we build our knowledge by, by projecting out, like sort of tentacles, throwing out tentacles from what we already know in order to enable us to get some kind of a grip or a handle on something that's new. Is the atom a bit like a current bun, as J.J. Johnson said? Well, yes, but that doesn't get us very far. So perhaps a better metaphor would be it's a bit like the solar system. Well, that got us away. Bohr's model of the atom got us quite away. But interestingly, Niels Bohr never really believed that there were little things called electrons whizzing around a big solid mass called a proton. Heisenberg said in, in one of his writings, 
Bohr was just using the phrase he uses such in to try and describe his understanding of the atom. He used such inadequate means as electron orbits. He's clutching for a metaphor to try and give some shape, to try and convey what it is that he thinks he's understood. Mm. You know, and that and, and that worked quite well. You know, but there are, you know, umpteen flaws in the solar system model of the atom, as we all know. And science has moved on. Yeah. So even in science and maths, and mathematics is very interesting. There's a wonderful book, which I read, a fantastic book called Where Mathematics Comes From, which, which argues, to my mind, quite convincingly, that an awful lot of maths of algebra and differential calculus rests on in bodily metaphors rests on meta buried unconscious often but metaphors that we've imported from everyday life and everyday experience yes so so to bring this back to the classroom we talked about how these ideas the, the metaphors the language that's being used to describe how memory works is oversimplistic and maybe several bridges too far let's bring this back to the classroom just to sort of to reiterate the tradition of this sort of line there's essentially sort of four parts to it so we've got the number one the, the more information you can get into the long-term memory the less cognitive load there is and therefore the, the more effective the, the young people are able to learn number two the best way to get information into the long-term memory quickly and efficiently is through direct instruction number three the best way to make sure that information is retrievable through long-term memory is through frequent tests and repetition. And number four, therefore, direct instruction is the best way to teach QED. Yeah. So, so where does this, at what point or points does this argument fall apart in your, in your view? Well, we've, we've been talking about lots of, lots of the ingredients for that, James, haven't we? But I think it's, um, that model, that understanding, applies only under particular circumstances. Yet it is presented as if it were the be-all and the end-all of our understanding about learning and memory. So there are places, of course, there are contexts, there are groups of learners, there are topics there are purposes of learning where telling people stuff and getting them to rehearse it might well be necessary and efficient. Mm. But that doesn't mean that, that, that therefore the more of that in more and more places, the better. That model doesn't apply to someone training for a 100 metres freestyle place in the Olympics. It doesn't apply to most of what we what passes for learning and understanding out there in the big wide world. So it may be like for sort of heightened levels of discipline, for example, of teacher directedness, of centralized control in the classroom, may be necessary when the learners that you have in that room have not yet mastered the basis, the basics of social self-regulation. I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea that it does some young people a good service 
bit like, you know, when, when there was national service, some youngsters said it was the making of me, you know, it kind of, yeah, taught me to, you know, to turn up on time, to be polite to people, to do what I said I was going to do. You know, it gave me the foundations. And there are lots of, I once examined a PhD that looked at the sort of anthropology of what was going on in Jamie Oliver's kitchen, his 15 kitchen, where he got lots of, lots of youngsters who were sort of in danger of, you know, falling off the, going off the rails. Yeah. You know, and there was a lot of tough love in that, in that kitchen. There was a lot of, you know, they didn't think they would have to at the beginning, but there was a lot of discipline, a lot of hard, you know, hard talking and so on in order to get people to the place where they could then manage increasing degrees of autonomy and responsibility. Mm. So I'm perfectly uh, happy to say that platform with some youngsters may need to be built. And in building it, the appropriate pedagogy might be something that looks quite disciplined, quite highly directive, and may involve, you know, detentions and punishments and what have you. Yes. But that's not where we want to get to. That's just building the launch pad, right? Then, on the basis of that launch pad, we want to do a lot more interesting things, which are to do with questioning and going deeper and exploring possibilities and developing our imaginations and introducing our creativity and so on. If you try and introduce those higher level things too quickly without the, without the launch pad, as I think some progressives have done and have argued, mm -hmm. then it doesn't work. You know, this kind of bogey person of minimally guided instruction. If kids don't know what they're supposed to be doing and they don't know how to organize themselves and so on, of course it's going to be a mess. Nobody advocates that. But the place we want to get to is where youngsters can do deeper, more interesting kinds of learning because they've learned what it is to sit in a group of three or four people and listen and how to disagree respectfully mm. and how to take turns in a conversation and had therefore how to use their imaginations and how to rescue themselves from difficulty. That's where we want to get to. Yet some people seem to think that the platform is all we need. It's like we've laid the foundations of the building, job done. You know? Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and we're sort of merging a little bit into the next section here, which where we're going to think about thinking and teaching thinking. But just to wrap up this section on memory, you know, that the traditionalist on my shoulder, when you were talking about that's not how an Olympic, you know, finalist learns, the traditionalist on my shoulder is saying, but an Olympic finalist isn't a novice and children are novices. And so we need to treat them as such. And like, as you just said, that's true. But is it the case that all children are novices and should be treated as such in all subject disciplines from age three to age 16 or 18? You know, it would be it would be a simple, you know, it would be a simple answer to say con convincingly, yes, it would, in which case direct instruction is the way to go in every possible context. But if you can't answer that question with your hand on your heart, should we always treat children as though they are complete novices and need that strong steer from the outset? then, uh, you know, 
we're going to have to have a bit of a longer conversation, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, yes, I think anybody, I mean, that's, you know, we can't, we don't have time to go into everything. But I think, again, that's, it's, it's so simplistic, that sort of making that hard distinction between novices who don't know anything and therefore have to be treated this way. You have to stuff their brains full of stuff before they can start to think about it because they're not experts and only experts can think about things. Nobody who's ever had a child could possibly adopt that model of learning, I don't think. Children learn by, you know, Karl Popper, the, the title of one of Karl Popper's, Popper, Karl Popper's books, Conjectures and Refutations. Yes. Don't we? That's how you learn. You learn by coming up with an idea and seeing whether how it goes down, whether something work, work works or not, whether whether your joke makes people laugh or not. You know, behavior is an experiment, and we learn through good old-fashioned trial and error most of the time, and that's how experts learn, and it's how novices learn. They have much more in common. They're just at different places on the continuum but that doesn't mean that their learning processes have to be seen as qualitatively different. We're all apprentices in different kinds of things, aren't we? Mm. You know, and we start to learn things that, you know, later on in our life, like, you know, learning new computer skills or whatever it may be. The idea that because I'm not very good at something yet, that therefore mandates a didactic form of learning and teaching doesn't conform with the way most of the world functions. Yes, yeah. And th this is what we're doing now, right? We're learning, um, I'm certainly learning through conjecture and through refutation. Um, and that's what's needed in order to deal with these things. Just to go back to that paper that we started this um, this section on memory about this paper from uh, Kirshner, Sweller and Clark, the title of that paper, and that's what's sort of part of the problem with the way that these the, the neo-traditionalism is being paraded as the ultimate answer. The title of that paper is Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Does Not Work, An Analysis of the Failure of Constructivist Discovery Problem-Based Experiential and Inquiry-Based Teaching. And you talk in the book, you sort of say, notice for starters, the uncompromising language, this phrase does not work and failure. And also this polarizing assumption that all these failed forms of teaching are necessarily based on minimal guidance, as though there is a doctrinaire commitment by all teachers to withholding guidance from learners completely or almost completely. It's like the mother of all straw man arguments, that paper. Yeah, yeah absolutely, Absol absolutely. And there's, you know, this is this is where we're back to the to the middle ground. You know, I mean, I've just I've just been reading some. I've got a couple of papers on my desk here that I've been reading recently that just, you know, remind you of, you know, back to Yong Zhao and the, the multiple objectives of education. And that if you're not careful, your lopsided obsession with one set of objectives can not just neglect, but can actually do harm to other objectives. There's a classic, much quoted paper by Elizabeth Bonowitz. It's an experimental paper with children, but it makes a very important point that if children are introduced to a new sort of complicated toy, 
by someone who explains it to them and shows them what shows them what it can do. And then there's another group of children who are that's the, the adult comes in and says, I've just found this new thing and I don't know how it works. Let's see if we can what what let, let's see what it can do. And then you give the toy to the two groups of children and see how they play with them. The groups of children who've been given the direct instruction are much less imaginative, much less creative, discover many fewer of the affordances of the toy than the group who were just give, teed up with a bit of curiosity and encouraged to explore it. Now, there are certain kinds of learning where there are things that you want people to discover, or they may be rather arcane or complex. So you need a lot of framing and a lot of explaining before you go down that route. But that's not all kinds of learning. That's not every kind of learning. So, you know, it back to our, our example of, of an, an hour and a half ago about, you, you know, you can try and squeeze reading ability out of kids but it may have the effect of damaging their pleasure in reading mm. so squeezing children's ability to do one one thing with this toy has the collateral creates the collateral damage of diminishing their curiosity and their creativity when they engage with them here's another example of a paper that's just just been published in child development the title is children persist less when adults take over. Every parent knows that, <laughs> don't they? Yeah. Yeah? It's like, you know, you so you, you go along, your child's trying to do something, and you, you very helpfully say, well, perhaps, you know, perhaps it will be better like this. And if your child's got any gumption, they turn around and yell at you and say, no, daddy, me do it. Right? You've just robbed them of the pleasure of grappling and struggling with doing something difficult and experiencing the nectar of the pride that comes when you finally do it, when you finally learn to crawl or your spaceship launched accurately from the <laughs> thing or your paper was accepted for the journal. You know, learning involves this grappling. Here's another, another article called DIY Productive Failure boosting performance in a large undergraduate biology course. Kids learn, undergraduates learn more deeply, they retain the information better if they're required to grapple with something before they're taught about it. Yeah, yeah. It seems less efficient. Oh, for goodness sake, it's much more efficient if I just tell them and just explain them. But it's only within a very narrow definition of efficiency that that turns out to be the best form of pedagogy. Only if we neglect other outcomes like deeper understanding or conceptual understanding. Mm. Even project follow through showed that direct instruction has is no better than the other forms of instruction which are compared with when it comes to deeper forms of conceptual understanding. Right? It's not the holy grail. It's not the gold standard. It's good for some kinds of things, but not for everything. It's good for some kinds of learners, some kind of topics, for some kind of purposes, but it's not the template for all learning.
let's come on to thinking, which is uh, also something that we often hear um, in traditionalist um, versions of, of how young people learn and develop. Um, and it's this idea that it's impossible to teach thinking, I think is probably the mo at the most basic level, that the traditionalist view is that it's not possible to teach thinking, that you teach knowledge and knowledge uh, sort of somehow gives rise to thinking or thinking emerges from having strong, rich garden of schema in your long-term memory. Um, and in the book, you sort of counter that and say, well, that's just untrue. It's, it's well proven that you can teach thinking. Could you please elaborate? <laughs> well, I was, I'm delighted to have discovered, or as, as I was going through the book, that this, this idea, this, uh, I think E.D. Hirsch was, was the sort of the patron saint of, of, the, of this idea, that somehow or other it's a nonsense, that there are such things called generic skills that we can teach but we know we need to unpick unpick several confusions in there um where shall we start well we, we we can just start start with the evidence uh daniel willingham was originally persuaded of this that you can't teach thinking but in 2017 he read work by someone called sam weinberg which showed very, very clearly that across a, a, a broad range of different contexts, particularly in online things, there are lots of things that you can teach people which which make them better critical thinkers. Um, it's just, you know, it's, a, it's the, the, the idea that this is somehow some logical impossibility is just very weird. You know, for example, it's useful to tell people that when you're trying to evaluate the credibility of a website, there are certain things about the website that it's useful to pay attention to. Are there misspellings? Are there certain features of the way the website is presented? But it's also extremely useful to Google critiques of that website. Right? Like some people wouldn't have some people wouldn't have thought of that. So as a kind of maxim for, you know, behaving intelligently when you're researching things online, go for the, the, the site, that, go for the TripAdvisor site rather than the individual hotel site when you want to get a rounded view of the pros and cons of something. Now that's useful. There are all kinds of books that have been written, you know, good way back to the early years of the of the last century. A man called Polya wrote a book called How to Think, mm. which is full of interesting strategies for improving your thinking. David Perkins has written books about this. There are lots of things that you might not have thought of yourself that if you're reminded of them, people call them mind hacks or mindware. You know, things that you can learn which enable you to function more intelligently, obvs. <laughs> <laughs> so that, so that, that, that's one thing. Another element of this argument is going back to a, a, a point that we made earlier on, this naive idea that teaching, the idea of teaching skills is the same kind of thing as teaching the kings and queens of England, right? And therefore, they must compete for the same kind of learning space. 
you know, not only is it in, that there are no such things as generic skills, but if we try and teach them, we're de detracting attention. This was Hershey's argument, you know, from feeding kids all the knowledge. There's so much knowledge, cultural knowledge, cultural capital that they need to have, that anything that distracts from that is detracting. It not just distracts, but it detracts from their ability to cope with the world. Um, so we need to we need to pay attention to that. The other issue here is that it may be the case that you can't just plop there are areas where you can't just plop generic skills. You know, the disposition for empathy. You can't just teach it to someone and plop it into their mind. But what you can do is gradually disembed that skill from the original context and content and purpose of acquisition. You can peel away the wrapping by doing what uh, David Perkins calls in another of his great books called Making Learning Whole. He talks about the importance of playing away from home. In other words, deliberately exploring where, where you can make use of something that you learned in context A, whether there are other contexts where that might be useful. It's a pedagogical strategy. You could say to kids, you've been teaching them something, and then you could say, you know, get together and, you know, for a couple of minutes, think where else would this skill be useful to you? You can deliberately surface and stimulate the looking for transfer. In other words, learning to disembed the skill. Yes, there are certain skills that are peculiar to maths, which are different from the skills that are pe pe peculiar to history. But there are also overlaps and read acrosses from you know, what resilience in problem solving in maths and history might have in common, as well as what they might be different. And this is where I disagree with my old friend Dylan William, because he very much argued a few years ago that, you know, that, that problem solving in maths was different from problem solving in history or geography or RE. Mm. And that's putting it too strongly. There are differences, but there are also commonalities if you go looking for them. And if you go looking for them, that helps you distill out some kind of trans-situational essence, if you like, of imagination or collaboration or creativity or whatever else you might be looking for. So that so so the challenge is to go looking for forms of pedagogy which encourage that disembedding, encourage those skills to become more generic rather than presupposing that if we just do a little bit of talking about them and training them, they sort of plop into your head like goldfish in a bowl and they swim around everywhere and pop up automatically whenever they're relevant. That's a, mis that's a mistake. You know? And if that was the image that was at the back of E.D. Hirsch's mind, then yes, we need to get rid of that image that sort of things become generic easily or automatically. Yes. But that doesn't mean we can't help them in that direction. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've found that quite strange as well, this idea that there is this sort of absolutism against anything that whiffs of 
of being generic that everything is somehow rooted in in particular subject domains um it just seems to not stand up to a moment's considered thought you know mm-hmm. um and often this is framed as um as this idea you come across this idea from david geary this idea of like biologically primary versus biologically secondary uh knowledge yeah um and the idea being that biologically primary knowledge is stuff that we are evolved to do right and that includes things like recognizing faces and also speaking and listening and also some sorts of problem solving analysis like means ends analysis and then biologically secondary stuff is stuff that has that's come around for example you know in the last few hundred years like mm-hmm. learning to read and write and things that we didn't do learning about geography and the kings and queens right stuff that we have not evolved to do therefore it doesn't come naturally therefore we need sort of direct instructions and tough tough uh, you know discipline in order to sort of to to get young people to learn this this stuff instead um, and you can again, it's like with so much of this stuff, you can see yes. the grain of truth in it, right? Yeah. It is true that you know that people were not able to speak and listen. Sorry, sorry that they were able to speak and listen to to a significant extent prior to you know the invention of schools. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas before the schools were invented, not many people were literate or numerate, right? And so oh. it's clearly the case that there's that there's an element of truth here, but. It depends on how you frame it and the way in which, for example, speaking and listening is often cobbled in with this category of biologically primary stuff. It's as though it's as though, you know, the idea that, that it's not possible to teach somebody to speak and listen in more sophisticated ways than that which would just exist in the wild, mm-hmm. which is just palpably nonsensical. It doesn't like I say, yeah. it doesn't stand up to a moment's scrutiny. Yet, uh, I, you know, Geary has been quite influential. I, there's a there's a, a discussion of this in the book, which I won't go into in detail now. But he he's again sort of you know blinds you with science. If you if you read if you read the papers, they're just you know I mean I'm pretty literate in reading cognitive science, but a lot of a lot of what he wrote just just read to me, and maybe I'm missing something here like a just kind of you know a dog's breakfast of psychological concepts thrown together into an article garnered from the last sort of 50 or 70 years of of cognitive psychology now i i have an, enough not complete but i have enough confidence in my own experience and my ability to read these things to say hold on a minute you know because it's my field you know and i can have a look at that and say is he using these concepts in the way that they were originally meant? Or they did it, but someone, you know, a, a teacher who who has neither the training nor the time nor the inclination, quite rightly, to go into these things, you know, spend like fifty years of my life spent reading this kind of literature, <laughs> you know, they don't have it. It's like you know, they could easily be seduced by the by this by the appearance of scientific sophistication i mean that's clearly the case you know many people have been seduced by that idea and you hear it you hear it endlessly recycled so what would be your critique of this biologically primary secondary distinction i think it's just that it's you know again it's another example of overpolarization you made you made the the the, the, the point well yourself james it's just you know, it's like these trying to make these two categories 
pull to pull them apart and and draw a hard distinction between them doesn't make any sense and it and it and there are you know geary has one point of view as a kind of you know evolutionary psychologist but again you know as with the models of working memory there are now other views which are quite different and which have at least as much academic credibility um, for those. I mean, Cecilia Hayes, a fellow of All Souls College at Oxford and professor of psychology, has a wonderful book out recently called Cognitive Gadgets, which is which tells a very different story about the evolution of our cognitive capacities. And I, I you know, I'm not going to go into that now, but just, you know, suffice it to say, or um, who's the other person whose work I've been reading? There's another one, Kim Steronier, who was, was an Australian, who was also at Oxford, but has now gone back to Australia, writes very interestingly about the evolution of teaching and learning, putting these, con these concepts in an evolutionary concept and coming out with an image that is quite different from and in fundamental ways at odds with the picture that Geary has come out with. Now, that's academic work for you. Different academics disagree about the perspective and about the detail and about the assumptions and the presumptions behind what you're doing. Geary's word is not the word of God. It's not the be-all and end-all for thinking about the evolutionary, evolutionary foundation of the ways we go about knowing. It's one voice. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's really interesting. Um, and the, another idea that, that often comes up here, we touched upon it when we were talking about memory earlier, is this, 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 this distinction between experts and novices. Again, we hear this language a lot in traditionalist circles. Uh, the idea being that children are novices and therefore you need to treat them as such and they cannot be expected to think like experts. Mm. Um, you spend some time in the book talking about this and essentially there's a, the key question here is how does a novice become an expert is it by yeah. is it by you know memorizing knowledge or is it by doing things like the stuff that you were talking about earlier conjecture and refutation trial and error and yeah. apprenticeship like cognitive apprenticeship yes, yes. there's i mean there's a, there's a whole that that whole idea of cognitive apprenticeship uh was very topical a few years ago and i i wish it had gained more traction in the education world because i think that's a very productive perspective on what schools are. Can you, ex are. Can you explain a little bit about the background of this idea? Um, well, it's the idea that, that the way we learn and the way we know and the way we appraise knowledge are skilled activities. They're not some kind of magical manifestation of something called intelligence, which some people were given lots of and some people weren't given much of, right? We acquire, and again, this is also Cecilia Hayes and Kim Sterling's work as well. It's like much more of these, what we have, what we have called intelligent activities are acquired through informal, often implicit processes of enculturation through growing up in a particular kind of family or a particular kind of community. We pick up the messages 
for how to think. Um, I once organized a conference in Bristol on cultures of cultures of learning, I think it was, where um, we had some people came and talked about their learning journeys in life. They were fascinating. And one of them who came was Estelle Morris. And another who came was Robert Winston, Lord Winston, the scientist. Mm -hmm. And it was very interesting how both of them talked about the foundations for their careers, one in politics and one in science, were powerfully laid by the quality of apprenticeship that they served as children sitting round the dinner table listening to and occasionally chipping in on conversations and debates and they learned you know how to formulate uh, how, how to debate and how to debate respectfully heatedly but respectfully they were socialized into the forms of intelligence which in one case blossomed into a highly productive scientific career and another into the world of politics but a lot of the intelligence that underpinned those skills in life were being laid intentionally or not through the apprenticeship of observation and the trial and error what a very important cultural anthropologist called Barbara Rogoff calls watching and pitching in is one of the most in many cultures one of the most powerful methods of learning that there is yeah and part of what's going on in school is watching and pitching in watching teachers and then pitching in so there is like an, an epistemic apprenticeship that's going on in school how do i think what's worth knowing what is treated with with respect when i make what when i make a comment in the class or what's treated with disdain you know it's like a comedian learns you know what gets a laugh and what doesn't so kids are learning implicitly it's not the public agenda how to think what to think what to respect what's silly what's creative what's imaginative what's mischievous all those judgments are being formed in the context of how their teachers speak how they react how they respond to um, breakdowns or accidents or unexpected events in the classroom all of these things are part of the sort of sub semi submerged curriculum which are teaching us how to how to remember how to organize our thoughts how to engage in debate with other people and i think you know that's a lot of what's going on in school and it's a lot of what lies behind the learning power approach that what's going on down at the bottom of the river is teaching at the level of socialization but are we socializing youngsters into passivity, docility, anxiety, and only caring about the right answer? Or is the mood music of our classroom drawing them in the direction of becoming more autonomous, more independent, more imaginative, more critical, and so on? 
So that the, the I think this idea of cognitive, or I would prefer the word epistemic, apprenticeship brings to the surface what's already going on in schools and raises the question, is that apprenticeship the one that we really want for our kids? Or is it something that's just happening by default? Yes. Can I just ask you about that? Because you, so you say you prefer the, the, the phrase epistemic apprenticeship to cognitive apprenticeship. And elsewhere, when you're talking about the development of character, you talk about epistemic character. Yeah. I've often wondered why it is that you use that language. Because so epistemic means like, relating to knowledge, right? Yes. So, yeah. so why is it that you talk about epistemic character in an epistemic apprenticeship? Because I am very, the bee in my bonnet at the moment is the importance of not confusing intelligence with intellect. Go on. That intellect, being intellectual, being explicitly rational and deliberate and methodical and symbolic, verbal, is one form of intelligence. But there are many other forms of intelligence that we've already mentioned. This is me now with my cognitive scientist hat on which are aesthetic and embodied and physical, which are not intellectualized, which are not even verbalized often, but which still deserve the accolade of being called aspects of intelligence. For me, the word cognitive presupposes intellectual. Cognitive as opposed to emotional is often the way the, the word is used. So that certainly in my understanding, that cognitive implies rational, implies consciousness, implies thinking, deliberate thinking. Whereas I, for me, the apprenticeship I want for young people is broader and deeper than that. It involves the aesthetic and the practical and the, um, the intuitive and the poetic as well as the explicit and the rational and the tidy. So that for me, that's just why I prefer ep epistemic for me is a superordinate term to cognitive. Cognitive is one aspect of epistemic, but epistemic for me just means stuff to do with thinking and learning and knowing. Okay, thank you. Thank you. That's a that's a a very interesting answer. So let's wrap up this part on thinking by thinking about Finland. This would not be a, we couldn't possibly have a conversation about progressivism and traditionalism without touching upon Finland. And it's interesting, like lots of the touch words, people talk about Ken Robinson, Finland, 21st century skills, and these are often very <laughs> triggering for traditionalists. So if, you, if you're a traditionalist listening to this and you're feeling yourself triggered by Finland. Yeah, we, haven't, um, we haven't talked about Saken yet. I haven't, but <laughs> no. I, I, perhaps we don't have time to do that today. That'll be next time. So Finland is doing a really good job of teaching kids. They seem to, to, to be doing a very good job of teaching kids about fake news, about how to live in this very confusing, polarizing, bewildering world where the, the internet 
is awash with bullshit, for want of a better mm-hmm. phrase, mm-hmm. and teaching them how to navigate that, not as a separate thing, but this is something that seems to be embedded in their teaching in mathematics. They're looking at, you know, lies, damn lies, and statistics and so on. In yep. art, they're looking at visual trickery and imagery and deep fakes and Photoshop and so on. In history, yep. they're learning about propaganda. And even in, in primary, you were talking about how they're, they're, t- they're taught the difference between misinformation, disinformation, malinformation um so and gossip and so on so um what's your what's your take on on this and and to what extent has this been um applied in other countries that you're aware of and and how can we get on board with this has this been a government program in finland or is it something that's been sort of seized by the teaching profession how has this played out um i think it there there is a national understanding i mean this is in a way like the difference of philosophy and I don't know, I haven't been into this in enormous detail. Passy Salberg has probably written about it, but I haven't read the read the requisite thing. So I've only read a couple of articles about this, which which caught my interest. So I won't swing for for this, for, for what I'm about to say. But I'm pretty sure that this has come about through the intelligent process that we talked about a little while ago, which is the society or you know people in positions of power sitting down and saying this is really important stuff youngsters need to know about this you know not because it's in physics or in the chemistry textbooks or whatever else but because out in the big wide world it's a matter of personal survival it's a matter of the survival of individuals that you have an appropriate a disposition towards appropriate skepticism when you're online who's telling me this how do i know that if that they are who they say they are in whose interests is it that i should believe this what is this person trying to make me believe right these are critical it's a critical module that should, that should needs to be installed in all young people's brains when they're online, isn't it? You know, it's a it's a, it's a module of you know onboard safeguarding. I'm safer when I'm online if the if I have those antennae which are quivering and saying, "Hold on a minute, how do I know?" So it just seems obvious to me. And it's kind of, it's a new, I mean, there has always been fake news, but it's particularly intense at the moment. So this is for me a particular case in point of what we ought to be doing much more of all around the world, which is taking a deep breath, sitting back in our chairs and saying, what do they really need to know? Mm. What do they really need to be able to do? Back to our conversation about what do they really need to know when we were talking about knowledge. So I think my reading of the situation, and this might be somewhat exaggerated on the basis of the articles that I've read, I don't know, that the Finns as a society have said, we need to get this stuff into schools early. This is important. We need to get it into the bone marrow of the way young Finns think, the way they engage with knowledge. They need to be more sophisticated knowledge uh what's the word i want not 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 just knowledge critics but wares of knowledge and not just a, uh, accumulators of knowledge and that that should be at least as 
important, should be really front and centre, just as much as the transmission of knowledge. Yes. So no, here's my slogan for the day, no transmission without interrogation. <laughs> Right. Um, I know that we were keen to have a shorter conversation this time and we're already over the two hour mark. So <laughs> let's wrap up the final bit of this conversation is that I think it's the final chapter of the book back from memory about what works and teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and so let's do this as a as a quick fire round. I'll give you the myth and you give me the counter myth. And, and so the, the, the phrase that you describe in the book, you, you could call it D-I-K-R, direct instruction in a knowledge rich curriculum as the sort of the distillation of the, of the neo-traditionalist position. So I'll give you um, a, a neo-traditional assertion and you counter it. And I was joking about this with Kath because I've often said in the past, this will be a quick fire round and then each exchange is about 25 yeah, yeah. minutes. So okay. let, let's try and keep this punchy, see if we can actually manage it. Okay, so the first one is um, constructivism is a flawed ideology. Uh, no, it isn't. It's a, it's a scientific. It's it, it's a fundamental um, truth about learning, which is about as questionable as the theory of evolution. <laughs> Thank you. The accumulation of facts in the long term memory is the goal of education. It's one tiny part of the goal of education, and there are other much more important goals than the, the accumulation of some facts is important, but the development of other aspects of young people's competence is even more important than the, than the accumulation of facts. Thank you. There is a single best way of teaching, as we heard espoused by our friend Gavin Williamson earlier. The method and purpose of teaching does not vary with age. Uh, there isn't a single best method of teaching. It depends what you're teaching for. It depends what you value. You have to specify that before you can say what's good practice or what's best practice. And... Uh, Teaching and learning obviously varies enormously with all kinds of things, particularly children's age. So there is no reason why we should assume that a single approach to teaching should be the correct method of teaching for all ages, all kids, all backgrounds, all subjects and all purposes. That is just like shooting yourself in the foot or educating with both arms tied behind your back if you start from that assumption. Mm, thank you. There are essentially two kinds of teaching, direct or explicit instruction, which is good, and minimally guided or discovery learning, bad. Those are two stereotypes that sit at the opposite end of a whole lot of complicated dimensions and spectrum, spectra. And the interesting ground for the development of 21st century pedagogy, a pedagogy that transmits knowledge, develops expertise and builds positive dispositions of learning. The interesting ground is in the middle between those two straw men. 
Thank you. I'm enjoying this quickfire thing. It seems to be going well. Um, I've got <laughs> I've got a few more. The next one is project-based learning has been proven to be a waste of time. No, it hasn't. <laughs> Good teaching involves lots of repetition, testing, and spaced-out retrieval practice. Good teaching for a certain small number of very specific purposes uh, makes good use of that kind of um, disciplined practicing and rehearsal. For most other kinds of learning, uh, it's not the best way of teaching or learning. Research will tell us what works in teaching. No, it won't. Re research tells us what is possible. Research fires our imaginations for what the, what the mind is capable of. Our values tell us what is desirable. And education arises from the confluence, the blending together of a set of possibilities with a set of desirables. Mm. That's why it's so fascinating, right? It's like this just unholy mess of values, science, you know, it's very complex and multi-layered and endlessly fascinating. Okay, the final one is traditional examinations, very topical. Traditional examinations are the fairest and most objective way of assessing what has been learned. They are very often the unfairest and most objection objectionable ways of assessing what has been learned. They're good for some purposes, but they have many toxic side effects, which have been well documented for lots of years. And I'm very grateful that the Rethinking Assessment Group uh, is taking a long, hard look at what are the best ways of assessing what kids really need to know for the 21st century. Yes. This, this point about toxic side effects is so useful, I think. I really appreciate Yong Zhao's um, uh, work on this. And we really need to develop a much more hard-headed approach to researching these things in a neutral way, looking at effects and side effects in the way that you get with, you know, we've, adopt, we've imported pharmaceutical-style randomized controlled trials. I would love to start seeing, you know, a, a section in EEF reports that's labeled side effects. Yeah, absolutely. Where there are, and these are longitudinal, you know, when we're, we're doing follow-up studies for a long period of time. And something like the EEF would be perfectly set up to do that. The way in which research is funded, you know, it's, it's often sort of like quite ideological and based on, you know, just practicalities of getting money. It's a complicated thing and it's difficult to see how, how educational, social research can be as sort of even-handed in that way but i do think that we need to start to embrace those stories about you know like instead of having this endless like you say back to the punch and judy show yeah. silent corridors will save us no they're not they're evil authoritarian nonsense that will lead us to the gulags you know this is not going to get us anywhere but if we could have a study of schools that have silent corridors and look at this in a longitudinal way and just with fascination with curiosity it's a really interesting thing to look at mm -hmm. but let's at least look at it I would love to see that. And I know there's, a, there's a, another chapter in the book about research, um, which sure, people sure. will have to read well, in their own time. One, one, one or other of us should send a copy of What Works May Hurt to Becky Francis and hope that the Education Endowment Foundation takes your 
points to heart, James. Yeah. I mean, she wrote that famous paper, didn't she, with Martin Mills, Schools as Damaging Organisations. So she, you know, she's been aware mm -hmm. of, of the, the, the shadow side of schooling for some time. It's interesting Indeed. that she's now the head of the EF. And yes, it might well be a good thing to, to send her. So, um, well... I think that we should probably draw it to a close there. Um, I'll just finish by saying, first of all, I thank you for writing this book. I, I think my, my endorsement quote said something like, this should come with a box of popcorn or a box of fireworks or something. It's a, <laughs> it's right. a, it's a very entertaining read. And, and uh, I, like, I've, I've long admired your writing. But this book, I really think, is a very important one. Uh, you describe it as adversarial rather than your usual sort of advocacy work, but I found it to be a very even-handed and forensic examination of these important ideas. And I think that just to, to look in the grand sweep of things, I, I do think that traditionalism and neo-traditionalism has a lot to offer, and it's, it's brought us a lot of insights, and it was kind of a, it feels like it was a necessary counterpoint to some of the excesses and the fetishization, fetishization of skills and some of the questionable sort of third generation practices that we spoke about in our last conversation that became popular around sort of 15 or 20 years ago. It does feel like there was a sort of a necessary correction, like a, a leash jerk or whatever you want to call it, a necessary antithesis to the, the excesses of, of, um, of some of those practices. But it's also abundantly clear through this conversation and through through your work that the neo-traditionalist narrative has many shortcomings and you've done a brilliant job of exposing these to the light. And it also has a shadow side, you know, and, and we need to have an honest searching conversation about what that is and to examine the effects and side effects. Um, so, yeah, all that remains is just to say thank you very much for giving so generously of your time again. I'm really looking forward to seeing what people make of this conversation. I think if I get it out in the next few days, we might see some some half term fireworks before we go back <laughs> for the summer term. So let's see how that goes down and await with with eager interest. Great. Thank you. Can I, and if I can, if I can be allowed one one last word, I my my wish for this book is that it helps to stimulate experimentation and innovation in the in the teaching profession i i think there are all kinds of irrefutable good reasons why we need to be rethinking education at the moment in the light of many of the things that we've been talking about um, the status quo won't stand but I, but I fear that some of these simplifications and misconceptions that we've been talking about today have been functioning as a bit of a logjam that has been inhibiting the grassroots innovation. It's been undermining a lot of teachers' confidence in the fact that there may be newer, more comprehensive, more appropriate forms of teaching that they would be delighted to be tinkering their way towards. And if this book kind of, you know, lobs a bomb into that logjam and helps to free up the pent up tide of innovation worldwide, 
then I will go to my grave happy. <laughs> well, I certainly think that it's going but to... But not a... yet. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly think it's going to achieve that. Um, as a very final word, are, are you happy to share the working title of your forthcoming book? Because it's the, the favourite title of the book that I've ever come across, I think. <laughs> No, not yet. Oh, okay. We'll leave that as a teaser. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this plays out and uh, I will wish you uh, an enjoyable rest of your Easter break. Thank you very much, James. It's been great chatting with you. Always a pleasure. And um, thank you for the good work that you're doing. Time is a measure of change. Don't have much time Time is a measure of change